Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that uh, you have spoken through your ancient word and we thank you that it's not just an ancient word from years ago but that you continue to speak through that word today because it is your living word. And so we pray that as you... As we turn to the Bible now, you would indeed speak to us. It is our only hope living in a confused and crazy world. And so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do sit down. Now, there'll be two things that'd be useful to do in a moment. Gordon is going to read for us. Uh, Before he does, I'm going to explain where we're at in the reading and uh, in this series. Um, and uh, two things that I think would be useful for you to do. One would be to um, uh, pick up your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Page 1148 is a page number. I think that will be extremely helpful for you as Gordon reads and then as I try to explain this Bible passage to us. Page 1148. The other thing that will be very useful to do will be to uh, pick out this um, handout, this sermon outline. It has a number of quotes on it. So even if you're not particularly bothered about taking notes, which is fine... I think you'll find it very helpful just to have that in your hand as well. I'll refer to that as we go along. And in a moment, Gordon is going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning to read at verse 17. Uh, But before he does, let me explain what has happened up to this point in chapter 7. It seems that the Christians in Corinth um, are confused about the Christian doctrine of marriage and of singleness and of sex. And so in the first 16 verses of the chapter, Paul has written about the importance of sex in marriage and indeed of the huge value of singleness and the importance of faithfulness in staying married. And then he writes from these words from verse 17. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Do not let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. Now about virgins... I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives 
should live as if they had none, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not, were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is acting improperly towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting on in years, and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Gordon, thanks uh, very much indeed. So we continue this uh, series looking through uh, uh, these issues of uh, sexuality, understanding sex in a confused culture. Last week we looked at marriage, this week uh, singleness. And on that subject, Tim Chester writes these, these words, we need a biblical vision of singleness. Churches don't always help. There was a time when the church saw marriage as second best. The spiritual best was monasteries, convents, and a celibate clergy. But today, evangelicals more often seem to view singleness as second best. Now, I think that is bang on the money. Except I think Tim Chester's being very generous when he says that churches don't always help. I reckon churches don't often help single people. And worse, there are many married Christians who are actually unhelpful and patronising towards single Christians. Perhaps summed up in the question, isn't it about time you got married? Of course, it is never stated this boldly, but I think it's fair to say that in many churches, you'll be given the distinct impression that singleness is a state you have to put up with. A state that you have to cope with until the climactic euphoria of a wedding day finally arrives to release you from your miserable second-rate single existence. As a result, the church and married Christians have done a great disservice to single people by failing to affirm singleness as a valuable and effective way to serve the Lord. You see, that is the way the Bible is. It is very positive about singleness and says it is a good gift that God gives to be used for his glory. Now that indeed is the first point on the handout. Singleness, a gift from God for his glory. 
we turn then to 1 Corinthians chapter 17 and uh, we begin to look at this uh, chapter last week as we considered marriage, but most of this chapter is a positive declaration of singleness. It is an approving affirmation of Christian singleness and indeed an encouragement to choose to remain single for the gospel if you can do that. Paul says in verse 7, I wish that all men were as I am. He's talking about being an unmarried Christian worker. And in verse 26, we begin to see why he says that. Paul writes in verse 26, because of the present crisis, I think it's good for you to remain as you are. That is, to remain unmarried. And what is this present crisis he's referring to? Look down, if you will, to verse 29, and you see it is that the world needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 29, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. That's the crisis. The world we live in is temporary. Everything in this world is going to go up in smoke one day. Christians, this is not our home. We're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness. So, verse one, don't allow, verse 31, don't allow yourselves to be engrossed, absorbed, immersed in the things of this world. Whatever your marital status, married or single, don't live for this world, but work for the gospel. And Paul says it is easier to do that as a single person than as someone who's married. Look at verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. See what he's saying? Being single gives you unique opportunities to serve the Lord without the concerns that come with marriage. Being single means you can be, end of verse 35, undivided in your devotion to the Lord. Now look, we must be absolutely clear what is not being said here. Last week we saw that marriage is a good gift from God. What we're reading here doesn't change that or undermine it and it's not in conflict with it. Look back to verse 27 and you'll see that Paul has made it abundantly clear that it's not wrong to be married. See verse 27, are you married? Don't seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life and I want to spare you this. Not wrong to be married, says Paul. Marriage is a good gift from God. Everything we thought about last week. But singleness is also a good gift from God. And indeed that is exactly the language Paul uses in verse seven. Singleness is a gift from God just as marriage is a gift from God. End of verse seven, each of you has his own gift. One has this gift, another that. And so both the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness is given for precisely the same reason. 
So you remember last week we saw that marriage is given so that a married couple can help each other to spread the life and blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ to as many people as possible. And if you weren't here last week, you'll have to listen to the talk. It's online, you can do that. Now this week, what we see about singleness is it's given for exactly the same reason, to spread the life and blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you see, I love that about the Christian gospel. There is a wonderful equality in the Christian life. Married or single, we have been given exactly the same mandate, exactly the same purpose, exactly the same reason to get up in the morning. It is to go and spread the wonderful gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ and to do it the best way we can. So if we're married, we should marry someone who is going to help us and encourage us to become more and more Christ-like and spur us on in gospel ministry. That, of course, is what we saw last week, is why you'd want to marry a Christian if you're a Christian. And if we're single, we'll be free from many of the concerns of married life and so be able to focus on gospel ministry. We both have, single or married, we both have the same task to do. Both marriage and singleness is good. And verse 35, Paul is not saying anything to restrict us. If marriage is right for us, then marry. But go into marriage with your eyes open, wide open, knowing that there are many things about married life that distract you from gospel ministry, described in verse 33 as the affairs of this world. So you see, while I've been thinking about this week, a number of single people in this church have come to mind people who are able to do all sorts of things in gospel ministry that they wouldn't be able to do if they were married. I've been thinking about people who've left this church to do gospel ministry. Let me tell you about two single girls, Carrie and Abby. In fact, they've left this church to go to another church. One of them happens to be here this, this, uh, this evening and I asked her if it was okay to say this and she said yes. Carrie and Abby left this church to go with Peter and Morag Turnbull to the the Murray Firth in Scotland to help grow a new church there. I'm not saying for one moment it was easy for them to move up just because they're single girls. I'm not even saying that that being single girls is easy to live. But there's no question that, that they were more able to move north Because all they had to do was find a job for themselves. That was difficult enough, but they were prepared to do it. They didn't have to think about educating and schooling children and all those things and whether their husband would get a job. Do you see? Didn't have to think about those things. I can think of Christian leaders who've had a huge impact on the church in this land who are single. Now, clearly their singleness has freed them up to travel and write and give undivided time to the work of the Lord. The the point is some people cope with life better being married. But those who can be single for the gospel are free to get on with gospel ministry without distractions. We should honour that life. Not see it as second best. It's a brilliant thing to do. So William Taylor writes, and we're over the page now on the handout. William Taylor writes, there are... There are unique opportunities in singleness and the single person, even the single person who remains single throughout their life, is considered to have been called into into a highly honoured position. One page later he writes, Paul wants to persuade us to think seriously about singleness, to value it, to treasure it, to desire it and also to honour it within our church family because a single person is able to give themselves in undivided devotion to the Lord. And Tim Chester, 
Singleness brings its own opportunities to serve God. It enables you to do things that married people either can't do or can't do so fully. Do not live as a not yet married person or a left on the shelf person. Do not cope with singleness as if singleness was some kind of illness. Live as a person gifted by God with singleness. Grasp the opportunity it brings with enthusiasm. Now, isn't all of that refreshing? Isn't that a refreshing message to hear about singleness? Singleness is a gift of God from the go- uh, for the gospel. Seeing this clearly in the Bible means that some people will need to change their thinking and some, I might suggest, will have to repent of their attitude in the past. As I say that, I'm thinking primarily of married people who are so patronising to single people about being single. Caroline and I didn't get married until we were 29. Long before we knew each other, through our 20s, we both had the same experience of married Christian people saying to us, that thing that is right at the top of the handout, isn't it about time you got married? That is so unhelpful at so many levels. If you are longing to get married and it's really hurting, it is the most hurtful thing to say and leaves you wanting to reply, and where do you think I'm supposed to find this other person from? And don't you think I've been looking anyway? But more than that, that kind of comment suggests that think the single life is just a temporary state which every single person is just longing to get out of. That kind of comment places no value on the honourable, devoted gospel ministry that a single person can have. So if you're single here tonight, see your singleness as a gift from God for the gospel. You can do great gospel work unhindered by the affairs of married life. If you want to get married, you're not doing anything wrong. But I'm saying don't see your singleness as an impediment or a second-class state or just something you've got to cope with until that glorious moment of marriage comes. Use the time and the opportunities you have as a single person to serve the Lord in spreading the life and blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, uh, I became a Christian when I was 20. When I was uh, 21, I wasn't going out with anybody. I didn't get married till I was 29. I didn't go out with anybody from 21 till 28. There were all sorts of reasons why that was the case, but they were brilliant times for learning the Bible, for serving the Lord. Perhaps I can especially address the single men here. I'm thinking of the young single men. There is often a lazy selfishness in single Christian men. You have a terrific opportunity, but so often you just witty your time away in all manner of trivial pursuits. You could be using your time to get to know the Lord better, to serve him more fully, to do all these things without any distractions at all, but you just kind of witty your time away. See your singleness as a brilliant chance to serve the Lord. Singleness, a gift from God for his glory. Second, singleness. Is a life without sex possible? See, that's one of the main questions, really. Let's get to the point. That's really what we're worried about, isn't it? It is a question we need to address because as we've seen over the past two weeks, sex is for marriage. And marriage is to be between one man and one woman for life. So if I'm single, then sex is not for me. And last week we saw why God says that. It's not because God wants to ruin our fun. It's not because he's a killjoy. uh, But because sex is like super glue. Do you remember we saw this last week? 
Sex is designed to stick people together, to keep people together. And until you are ready to commit yourself to someone of the opposite sex in marriage for the rest of your life, then you shouldn't use the glue. Don't stick together what actually might not be permanent. So the Bible clearly teaches that sex is for marriage. But the world around you will tell you that life without sex is a sure way to be unhappy and unfulfilled. Some would even suggest that it is bad for you. Now look, Hollywood is never the best place to turn to to form a worldview. But whether we realise it or not, we are influenced by the powerful messages of Hollywood films. And have you noticed how Hollywood laughs at celibacy? Uh, Ed Shaw, in his uh, excellent book, The Plausibility Problem, which I'll come back to in a moment, points to comedies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and 40 Days and Nights. The first chronicles a man's increasingly desperate attempt to have sex for the first time, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. The second shows a younger man struggling to last just 40 days and 40 nights without sex. These are comedies. It is a laughing matter in Hollywood to be a virgin in your 40s and to try to go without sex for a month. And never mind Hollywood, I've had serious conversations with Christian men who've been told by someone or read somewhere or other that to refrain from sex will do them psychological harm. That sexual repression will make them aggressive and angry. They must have sex in order to let everything out that's so pent up inside of them. Well, before we go any further, let's consider Jesus. Because you see, as we look at Jesus, we are looking at the most complete, the most content, the most fulfilled human being who ever lived. And he was a single virgin all his life. Considering Jesus is not everything there is to say on the subject, and I'm not saying it's easy to be single, I just want to caution us, all of us, that if ever we're tempted to believe the lie that singleness, and perhaps especially in our culture, that a life without sex is a life of frustration and unfulfilled discontentment, looking at Jesus tells us that is simply not true. That said, this is still a very important question to address. And not just this week as we think about singleness, but next week as we consider same-sex attraction and the week after when we address pornography. So again, let's be clear that sex is for marriage. We see it here in our passage this week in verse 8. Verse 8, now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am, for all the reasons we've just mentioned. But if they cannot control themselves sexually, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. You see, Paul says it's good to stay single. We know the reasons why, we've already thought about that. But if you can't cope without sex, then get married. See what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, stay single, and if you're just finding it hard to go, you know, to go any longer than 40 days or 40 nights without sex, then of course find some other way to relieve your sexual tension. He doesn't say that. No, it's clear. It, uh, it's right throughout the Bible that sex is not to be had outside marriage. As an aside, please don't build a whole theology of marriage on this verse, by which I mean don't think that sex is a good enough reason to be married. I trust that everything we considered last week will expose the poverty of that thinking. Marriage is so much more than just a place for sex. 
Now, what Paul is saying here is that if you are attracted to a Christian of the opposite sex and you can't control yourself, then it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But while your single sex is not an option for you because it's not for you outside of marriage. So before marriage, before you are committed to someone of the opposite sex exclusively in marriage for life, which happens incidentally on your wedding day, not at engagement, not when you're dating. So before your wedding day, don't have sex. And to know what that means, we need to define sex. See, earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, Paul has warned about the danger of sexual immorality. So it's just a back one page, if you're with me. Uh, chapter 6 and verse 9, Paul warns about the danger of sexual, sexual immorality. You don't really even need to turn to this passage. It's just to say that the word sexual immorality is there, chapter 6, verse 9, and the Greek word in that verse is porneia. And to understand that word, I've been helped by William Taylor, who writes, and again, this is on uh, the handout for you. In the New Testament, porneia refers to any form of sexual simulation outside a lifelong relationship between two people of the opposite sex who've publicly committed to one another in marriage. This includes sexual stimulation within a relationship of dating or going out, Sexual immorality includes any form of stimulation, whether verbal, with a flirtatious comment, visual, with a deliberate attempt to arouse another, physical, by sexual arousal of any one individual to whom you're not married, or virtual. Now that is clearly very different to the culture we live in, and by that I don't just mean the culture of the world around us, I mean that is very different from the Christian Dating culture. Just think about making out, as the North Americans call it. Making out is sexually stimulating. As you make out, you will find yourself sexually aroused, and with arousal comes a passion that is very, very powerful. So powerful that the Bible warns against it outside of marriage. I'm thinking of the Bible book of the Song of Songs. Song of Songs is the most erotic book in the Bible. And it has this refrain, do not arouse love until it so desires. The writer means don't get romantically involved until you're ready to marry and don't get sexually involved before you are married. And in chapter 8 we get a brilliant description of why. You see it's on the handout again. Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6. It's in poetic language, it's beautiful, but it's, it's giving a warning. Love is strong as death, it's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot wash it away. The Song of Songs says it is very difficult to put out that burning flame now you know what I'm talking about whether it's the burning flame of sexual stimulation or the fire of emotions as you begin to fall in love you can't put it out even never mind a bucket of water you can't put it out with a with a whole river of water 
Certainly in the heat of passion, if you try and stop, you won't be able to. And try and end a relationship where you've been sexually intimate. It is much more difficult than if you've never been sexually involved. Which is why Christians who start dating unbelievers can't get out of that relationship even though they know they shouldn't marry them. They end up marrying them because they're so physically involved and it burns like a blazing fire. Same is true sometimes of two Christians. If you get physically involved before marriage and then you reach the point where you realise you really shouldn't be married, you'll find it extremely difficult to break up. And so some Christians end up getting married even when they would be better not to because they got sexually involved and the blazing fire they couldn't put out. Sex is very powerful. Don't use it outside marriage. And if you see sexual immorality as William Taylor has helpfully defined it, then it means we need to change the culture of intimacy in Christian dating and reconsider what level of intimacy is wise and acceptable in Christian dating. Now look, this will be very difficult for many people to hear, especially those who are young and single, and very especially those who are dating and already sexually involved. I acknowledge it is very hard to go back. But let me tell you, it is possible. So let me urge you, encourage you to talk with your boyfriend or girlfriend about putting your relationship on a more faithful and pure footing and then talk to a Christian about it, a wise Christian. We will help you. As I said as we started this series, we've all failed sexually. We are all perverted sexually. Even those who are in a faithful, heterosexual marriage are perverted sexually by the things that go on in their minds. So there'll be no condemnation here. We want to be, we need to be a community of supportive forgiveness and of grace. And as I talk of grace, listen to this, the grace of God provides us the motivation and resources to live his way. So is it possible to live a sexually pure life as a single person? Well, what do you know about your God? Is he going to ask you to do something he knows you can't do? Of course not. He's not like that. Is he going to ask you to live in a way without giving you the resources to do that? Of course not. He gives the Holy Spirit for holy living. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8 would be good to read at the, uh, later on. And is he saying this to make your life difficult and miserable and unfulfilled? Of course not. He is your heavenly father and his love for you is greater than any love you will ever receive from anyone else. Just keep looking at the cross. Why is he saying this? Because he loves you and he doesn't want you to get hurt or the people you're with get hurt. If living a single life, and indeed living a single life without sex, sounds implausible to you, let me encourage you that living this way, difficult as it will be, will also be a very powerful witness to the Lord. Last week we saw how marriage and sex is a picture of the greater relationship between Christ and his people. Marriage is to point the world to something even greater than human marriage and sex. But listen to this, so does the single Christian who is celibate. We're over the page now, page four on the handout. 
Christopher West writes these words. Celibacy for the kingdom is not a declaration that sex is bad. It's a declaration that while sex can be awesome, there's something even better. See what he's saying? If you remain single and celibate, you're saying it's not everything to have sex. There's something greater. The relationship with the Lord Jesus to come. Listen to Glenn Harrison. Last week I quoted Glenn Harrison several times on how powerful a picture marriage and sex is to help us understand the greater relationship between Christ and his church. Well, listen to this from the same author. Faithful abstinence from sex outside marriage is just as powerful a statement of the unbreakable link between covenant and intimacy as that offered by marriage itself. Do you see? Covenant, the marriage covenant, an agreement between two people is to, be ha- is to be expressed in intimacy. If you as a single person are saying, I'm not going to be intimate in that way with, with other people I'm not married to, you are declaring this same truth, but in the other way. You're saying, no, it is that important. It's only for marriage. And one more quote on this, this time from Barry Danilak. Like Christian marriage, Christian singleness lived in its fullest expression is a powerful testimony to the gospel. In the unchanging commitment of love and submission expressed between husband and wife, Christian marriage testifies to God's faithful covenantal love towards his people and their submission and reception to his sovereign love. Christian singleness is a testament to the supreme sufficiency of Christ for all things, testifying that through Christ. Life is fully blessed even without marriage and children. It prophetically points to a reality greater than the satisfactions of this present age by consciously anticipating the Christian's eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God. Christian singleness lived as testimony of this gospel truth is a redeeming singleness. Isn't that brilliant? A life of sexual purity outside of marriage is a very powerful witness and extremely honoring to God. And is it possible to live a life sexually pure? A life of single-minded devotion to God? Well, it is particularly more able, more possible when we, God's people, collectively live as we should. Let me explain what I mean by that. I'm thinking about this book by Ed Shaw. Ed Shaw has done the church a great service by writing this brilliant book, The Plausibility Problem. Everyone should read it. If you're switching off thinking this is for singles, no, everyone should read it. It is written primarily in response to the issue of same-sex attraction. In this book, Ed Shaw considers many of the reasons why a life of singleness is difficult and, as he says, is it is implausible to ask anybody to live a single celibate life. And he shows how the church, the church family, needs to be thinking and living differently to help single people live a faithful single life. Let me whet your appetite to read this book. In the second chapter, he acknowledges how people who are committed to be single all their life for the gospel often struggle with the thought that they will never have a family. 
And without minimising the pain of that, Ed Shaw demonstrates that the church, the church needs to be family. I'm not just a concept. We often talk about church family, but living it, opening our homes, embracing single people to be part of our families so that single people really can be part of a family. Being so involved in a family that they're like an uncle or auntie to the children of that family. And not just being invited round for set pieces, you know, for Sunday lunch and special occasions, but having an open door to turn up any time and hang out with the family. Again, that is not to say that singleness suddenly becomes easy. Oh, it's okay because I've got another family. No, no, no. It's not saying that not having your own children is easy. None of that, but it will make it easier, considerably easier. He puts it so much better and there's a whole chapter on it. But the point is we all have a responsibility here to open our homes and our lives so that we embrace people who are single and support them through life. You've given up having a family. Come and be, we'll be your family, really. In real ways, every day. And Ed Shaw does this with issue after issue. The, all the issues that people struggle with, with lifelong celibacy. One more I'll draw on to close. The issue we've been thinking about this evening, being single and potentially staying single for the gospel means never having sex. Now that's not easy, and Ed Shaw acknowledges that that's not easy. As a same-sex attracted man, he's not going to get married because he doesn't think that's right for people who are same-sex attracted, and he's going to stay celibate. And he challenges us to reconsider our understanding of intimacy. And he paints a picture of the beauty of a non-sexual intimacy. Just think of a widow. Married for 50 years, then left on her own. And then for some years, she might not have felt the beauty of a human embrace. Might have been years before she's really felt that, that just the human touch. It's not a sexual desire she has, just the comfort of a platonic human embrace. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to expressing this type of pure intimacy. And it's not all about being tactile. We can show appropriate intimacy in other ways. Emotionally, opening up to one another. Being intimate in that way. In our words, in our kind gestures. There's all sorts of things we can do. And these things help single people. So Ed Shaw, who is same-sex attracted but determined to remain single and celibate, writes these words, My personal experience is the power of sexual temptation lessens the more time I spend among friends with whom I'm non-sexually intimate. He's not saying it's easy. He's just saying there's things we can all do as a church family to make it easier and plausible and possible to live a single, sexually celibate life. There's so much more to say about how we, God's people, can help single people to live a single life. I'm going to do that at the end of this sermon series as well as drop it in along the way. But to be, in truth, I don't have time to say any more now, but even if I did, I wouldn't say things that are as good as Ed Shaw writes them. Everyone should read this book. I'm not on commission incidentally oh at the bottom of the handout I've listed the chapters that are particularly relate to being single regardless of sexual orientation 
Well, we started this evening with Tim Chester's words, we need a biblical vision of singleness. Churches don't always help. They don't indeed, and that needs to change. I hope this, morning, uh, this evening we've seen that the Bible is very positive, very positive about singleness. That being single is a terrific opportunity to be unrestricted in undivided devotion to the Lord. To enable us to make the most of spreading the life and blessing of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to believe that a life of faithful singleness declares to the world that there is something better to come. A beautiful relationship with Jesus Christ. Which is the most fulfilling relationship anyone can ever know. And so as a church family, let's change the way we talk about singleness. And the way we think about singleness. Indeed, let's honour those who are single and support them through the struggles they have of singleness. And please, let's repent of anything that ever gives the impression that singleness is second best. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you very much for your word again addressing Um, us in the 21st century with relevant truth speaking to us right where we're at helping us to grapple with these most um, complex and uh, difficult issues we thank you that as we come to your word we come to you the one who loves us the one who we know wants the very best for us. We thank you that you're not out to get us. We thank you that you're not trying to ruin life. We thank you that you know us inside and out and know how we work best. And so we ask you in all of this, hard as some of it will be, help us to be people who trust you who trust you with our lives and who live in ways that honour you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.